Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Here we are. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Boss Man. Woo. It's Thursday morning here in sunny Barcelona. We got a lot to cover today. Couple topics. Number one, the similarities and differences between building software products and physical goods products. We are going to talk some David and Goliath. So whether it's better to be a small fish in a big pond or a big fish in a small pond, whether it's better to take on large incumbent competitors or whether it's better to dominate small niches, all that and more coming up. But first, some Europe talk at the top. I got an all-time response. Your email is Ian at Tropical MBA. Mine is Dan at TropicalMBA.com. And this Europe discussion has been great. It's been great. I love the positivity in this audience. 80% of the people who listen to this podcast own and operate location-independent businesses and you're all special breed, very optimistic, interested in seeing challenges as opportunities. And we don't get a lot of complaining and hate, hate, hate. I appreciate that, especially when we wade out into the waters of comparing two enormous continents and making generalizations and stuff. Yeah, I feel like it was really taken in that spirit. And the conversations that result are just really, really fun and thought provoking. So we appreciate that. So here we go again. Now we're encouraged (laughs) because no one's keeping us in line. I'll read an email from Massimo. He says, hey, guys, I'm a longtime pod listener since 2016 from the old continent. No, I'm not raged by your last episode, but I'd like to mention one big discrimination for EU citizens that no one is talking about, apparently. Why would a U.S. citizen be able to travel to our land and work from here remotely or even for a local company if he wants to settle? Well, we can't even reply to a work email legally while travel to the U.S. on a travel visa. I think our EU politicians are sleeping, as always. They should ask for reciprocity or not allow U.S. citizens to do so instead of fighting about Google Analytics data transfers and useless stuff like that. I love the tone of this email so far. This is also a main factor why U.S. salaries are so high, less competition. Interesting. In the EU... I can recruit someone from outside and relocate them in a week or so. I'm happy for you Americans to come to Europe and would not want to stop that, but just upset we cannot do the same. Have a great weekend and keep up the great work, Mosmo. Great email, a really interesting perspective. It's true, things are not equal. One of the things that jumps off to me about the page about Mosmo's take on this is I feel in general, Europeans they suffer or benefit, you know, two-edged to every sword with a lot closer relationships to their governments. And if you want to see how this works, you can look in a polarized situation like during the pandemic. One of the things that was really remarkable, Massimo, as an American, is how little power the federal government has over the average American. We complain about things like lack of social services, But part of it is the fact that our federal government just doesn't have that much as much control over us. And so the idea that when I read this email, trying to dig into like, am I ever going to care what the federal government has a commentary on where I send emails from? It's a very foreign concept for me as an American. 
Yeah, Massimo mentions uh, that his uh, politicians are asleep. And uh, it's interesting for me, Dan, I think in the last like six-ish years, the government wasn't necessarily like on the front page of the New York Times. Now, like, it's interesting to watch the government be this show for Americans. And it's really on the forefront of news and media that, uh, especially when Trump was in office, the media companies, like it was a ride of their life. Like policies were necessarily even on most Americans' minds for a lot of their lifetime. So certainly now I think that times are changing when it comes to that. And yeah, this is a two-edged sword. So, you know, while European politicians might be sleeping and forcing me to click accept 3,000 times when I go to a button. There was a meeting like five years ago and all the Europeans got around and said, you know what? We love cookies. Let's give everybody (laughs) cookies. My gosh, you can't go to a website without clicking accept literally three or four times. So while Europeans might be uh, more into making rules, there's certainly downsides to uh, engaging with American politics as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. I love this idea about less competition driving salaries up. American salaries are so high right now, and it is hard to hire foreigners for American companies. I think, Massimo, this is the punchline to a lot of this conversation. You got this first wave of American tech workers, this graduating class, going abroad with their big-ass, low-competition salaries, the next wave is facing the retreat, the counterpunch of all of a sudden, you send a VP of a big tech company that makes a lot of money there, think they're real clever living in Europe. Well, now they come to a co-working space like this and they realize that half the people here are back office staff. And they start questioning, well, how much do you make? What company do you work for in America? What's going on here? Oh, you work for a BPO firm that has 250 seats here in Barcelona that services a major brand. And that's kind of interesting. How much is this all going down for? And now that VP is saying, I don't know why I'm paying all these people below me what I'm paying them. And I think that that's going to be a big impact. American Delaware C-Corps, the traditional structure of tech startups, they are not yet like flexible enough, as Massimo points out, to really do this. They're still using firms to do it but they're going to do it natively soon. The next generation are already doing it. We're seeing it and there will be a counterpunch. This gravy train is not going to last forever. Another thing I want to point out to my European colleagues is as I was brainstorming with producer Jane about this email, we were thinking about some ideas. We could instantly on multiple hands, think of anecdotal stories of European friends that did a tour in America. They worked for American companies for a number of years. And that represented an absolute catapult in their career. Because for a lot of industries, especially tech, American firms represent the state of the art. And you just understand that when you go to networking parties and everything. So if you can get that logo, get that cheddar over in America for a couple years, then you come back to Europe, that can often be a big stepping stone. And look, Every sword has two edges. It's the opposite for Americans. You come over to Europe and you hang out for a couple of years. Maybe you're taking the foot off the gas of your career for a little while. Hopefully these things start to level out as the economy globalizes for digital workers and we can have the best of both worlds and everybody can enjoy all things at the same time. We appreciate this email. If you have thoughts like this, we love emails like this. My prediction is that this is the first graduating class of this happening. And as a submission to my argument, I want to pull up the most important of American resources, reddit.com. Going viral today in the Barcelona subreddit is a post by a Chinese freelancer, which is kind of interesting, right? 
Now all of a sudden you got Chinese freelancers thinking about this stuff. I really fell in love with Spain when I was a student back in the day. I'm thinking about moving back. Problem is I don't have a really big salary because I'm a freelancer. Right. The responses from people who live in Barcelona are like a chorus, a absolute chorus. Everybody is saying the same thing. Hey, if you don't make a lot of money, better not come to Barcelona because it is one of the most expensive places in all of Spain. And then they go on to agree in a chorus, and this is like well over 100 comments at this point, that to get anything decent and centrally located in the most expensive city in Spain, you're going to probably look at 900 euros a month in rent for a flat. I haven't been to America. And this is me falling off the side of my little bench in the co-working space right now because, wow. I think that part of the reason Europeans are talking about $900 being expensive is because it is a lot of cases, yeah. uh, depending on the type of job you have. I think one thing that's obviously very different between America and Europe is Americans, like we talked about in the last episode, have much more disposable income. Also, if you look at the amount of Americans, especially listening to the show, that are entrepreneurs, you have flexible income, too. The average person in Europe, in some cases, is trying to minimize their income so they don't have to pay more taxes. Like there's these thresholds, as I understand it. And the same thing exists in America, right? As an entrepreneur, like you cross a certain threshold and you're paying 20, 30%, but you have the opportunity to minimize your tax. Those thresholds hit like you're in the Tour de France and you step out onto a crosswind with no one around you. It's like a brick wall hitting you. Some of these tax shelves in Europe are so intense and so difficult to avoid that you often hear a lot of copes here, to be honest, about people either proactively or reactively deciding that they don't want to work more. Yeah. And whether that's a positive or a negative thing for them is to, for debate or for the individual. But for me as an outside observer, it's absolutely remarkable. Like the people who are making these decisions are the most capable people in your society. And I have a mixed emotions about that. I think I fall stronger on the American side, which is like, I'd rather light a fire under these people and incentivize them to go build wealth and build businesses rather than having the smartest people in a generation figuring out ways to essentially have more leisure time. Yeah, just call it, that's the Protestant heritage in me. Like, I think it's great when people want to work really hard and build things. I think it's awesome. And I think it's pretty easy to have fun and to like find leisure time and to eat for two hours a day instead of 1.15 like Americans do at your desk. And you're right. It's a really interesting point that some of the best and the brightest in Europe are actively figuring out ways to work less. And it's not, I can tell when you have these conversations with people, it's begrudgingly so. It's not like, oh, I'm so happy about this that I get got to figure out a way to take another couple of weeks of vacation. It's like, Basically, this is government mandated. This is government mandated leisure because they've made it so pointless for me to do more. And this really dovetails with what we were talking about last week, Ian, where in America, there's this dream and this idea that you have class flexibility, that you can start working class and you can become wealthy. Right. That is a theme of this podcast. You're listening to two working class guys who now share a lot of lifestyle elements with a wealth class. And I think that that's a lot more possible in America. Are there downsides to that dream? 
Sure there are. And one of those downsides is uh, you have the flexibility to move around classes. But unfortunately, if you're in some of the lower classes, you're not necessarily taken care of like you are here in Europe. So it's not everybody that's in the working class in Europe, so to speak, sloughing off or underachieving. No. Right. But in America, if you underachieve, um, whether it's your fault or not, you're not really taken care of. That's Meaning true. social services and things like that aren't available to you. Yeah. And you don't get to participate in the wonderful shared experience of a village, a town, a city that's designed for people to collaborate. Correct. There's another, that's like often not caught up in the GDP figures. And I think that's something that Europeans are gesturing to. I could just gesture to the basic foundations of the society, the way people are designed together, the way designed to exist together. It's harder in America. We, this idea, we point to something like, well, you have to have a car. The reality of being relegated to a person who requires the bus system in America to move around is such an enormous drop in dignity. You can't actually live in that city. And it's, by the way, why I recommend if you're a European or a digital nomad, an American coming back to America, get a car. You must have access to the dominant means of transportation where you're living or else you're a second-class citizen. I believe that. Yeah, there's really only one city in America where you can live nicely, not own a car, and that's New York City. I think about that because there was a lot of COVID nomads in Austin, you know, and a handful of them refused to get cars. And every time you hang out with them, they're given the Uber cope. Oh, it's fine. Fine. I, I, I just take Uber everywhere. It's fine. Oh, Uber's everywhere now. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. It's like, dude, like there's so many things you're not taking advantage of in this city yeah. because you're Ubering everywhere. Yeah. It's just a fact. <laughs> if you're, if you're living in America, your life is not going to be comfortable if you don't have a car. Cool. Can I read an email from Kevin? Let's hear it. Kevin wrote us an email. Howdy, Dan. Just finished listening to the European question episode. As you both spoke and played the soundbite from the beach in Barcelona, it brought me right back to that incredible feeling having just arrived in Lisbon many years back when I realized I was in a dreamland. The streets we walked down felt like they were right out of an impressionist painting. Incredible wine flowed like running water at dirt cheap prices. I love this. And after every late night dinner out with friends, some with young children, unheard of in the U.S. I'd like to underline that point that Kevin just made there. I love that about Europe, that if you're parents, you get treated better than single people, not the opposite way around. The wait person would always ask, espresso? To which I would, of course, have to say, why not? Not to worry, though. I can get similarly priced meals here in America if I go stand in line at Chipotle. Except, unlike the Prado Dudia, it doesn't come with wine and a dessert, and no one serves you. You just have one of those little number plates that you stick on your buzzers on your table <laughs> so that they don't have to hire another waiter. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Kevin actually does have a question, but do you have a feedback on his beautiful piece of digital nomad writing? Well, I'll just talk about the kid thing really quick here. Certified father, I have... Certified father. He's qualified. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a lot of difference between having kids in Europe and America. Well, that's interesting. The first thing that you'll notice immediately is that Europeans are more friendly to children than Americans are. And the same thing in Asia, actually. So many times here I've had waiters come up, hold my kid, carry him around, show him to the kitchen, already at the beach offering artifacts that they've found to him. 
we were at Pigeon Square the other day. It's this, I don't know what the official name is, but it's like <laughs> where all these pigeons are in Barcelona. And there was some guy with a uh, bird seed and he happily gave it to my kid and my kid spread it around. It was wonderful. If you try and interact with a child in America as an adult, it's a serious problem. In fact, if you go to parks in New York, I don't know if this is still a thing, but like you can't sit there as an adult. 20 years ago, you go to a park in the United States that would say, no unattended children allowed at this park. Yeah. No unattended adults allowed at that park. I saw that sign the other day while I was filling up my water bottle at a park and I realized that I was an unattended adult and I need to get the heck out of that park. There's a bunch of correlates to this, but the children, I think you know, the way that Europeans and Asians treat children is as if there is going to be another generation. And you can see the way that America operates and it is as if there will not be another generation. <laughs> oh, that's such an interesting take. Well, here's the other thing that comes with that. If you look around Barcelona, I was in a park the other day. They had taken the time to stamp the concrete with these patterns if you look up in Barcelona, if you look up from the street level, there's balconies on basically every building. There's some architectural design underneath the balconies. So when you look up, there's something interesting to look at. This whole city screams design. It screams architecture. And so do a lot of other European cities. When you go to America, you can see the stark difference. You can see the investors peering at you through the glass. Maximizing the square footage. Yes. You can look up and see an advertisement for a product that you might be interested in purchasing. Correct. This filters all the way down to the way that they treat their children. I mean, these cities are designed for people. People are friendly to children. Children are running around squares. There are no cars in certain areas of the city, so kids can run around. Well, safety is a big factor yeah. when it comes to... Children, there's a wonderful YouTube channel that I'll link up to in the comments, which compares letting your children run free in the Netherlands versus letting them run free in American suburbia. You can feel it when you watch the video that, oh yeah, like the emotion comes out of you. Like kids aren't safe there. There's like cars like driving at high speeds everywhere and there's like nowhere for them to be. Whereas here, there's a lot of space. Yeah. So I think uh, America is definitely taking an L here or a loss in terms of the way that they treat children and the way that children interact with the city. By the way, can I mention, I was in a village this weekend and you see this even in European village design, if you compare it with American towns, what American towns will do, you can think about this if you're an American, you're driving into a town and you're on a strode, which is, you know, a multi-lane like commerce mixed with, with people. And these are designed so poorly that they've got to put large flashing lights as you're coming into the town to tell you that the speed limit's actually 25 miles an hour, 40, yeah. 40 Ks an hour. Whereas I was in a European village this weekend and the streets were so narrow and twisted that like the traffic couldn't go faster. And the way the parking was set up, it was such that it is deliberately inconvenient if you want to drive here. And it was a space that kids were running free and that's intentional. That is a design factor. We missed the boat on it like 10,000 times. Yeah. That's the bummer with a society that moves, you know, that fast. Yeah. Americans are so allergic to walking. The idea for Europeans is just like, I'm looking at my watch here. I have like my steps on my watch. It's like I hit over 10,000 without even thinking about it every day. I love to challenge that statement. That's not true. It sucks to walk in America. I live in one of the most walkable neighborhoods in America by the data. I can walk to five or six restaurants. I can get a lot of the services by walking. 
it is dangerous to walk in my walkable neighborhood. Yeah. Straight up dangerous and unpleasant. There's high speed traffic. There's straight, terrible roads. We have these things in America where if traffic wants to turn right, they get like a special right-hand lane, which bisects the pedestrian lane. They're extremely dangerous and they're ubiquitous. They're all across America. So that yeah. as a pedestrian, you have to traverse this like very dangerous turn lane. And then you're on a little concrete island right next to high-speed traffic while you're waiting for the next signal. It's terrible. I mean, nobody wants to walk in these situations. No one wants to cycle either. I mentioned that. Final thought, the way that Europeans uh, kind of address this issue is uh, you have scooters now, which are a new thing to contend with. You have bikes, mm -hmm. you have walkers, you have cars, and then you also have motorcycles. It's amazing to me that everyone is treated equal. Like everyone views someone else's path to their destination as an important path. Everyone is negotiating all the time for the space that they're in. In America, like there is this hierarchy and it's very obvious. It's cars go first, cars win all the time. <laughs> if you have a new bigger car, you're even more of a priority. And yeah. then it just cascades down from there. And basically, if you're walking, you're invisible and it's your fault. Little narrative time. Dan, Ian, two very passionate cyclists. You taught me how to ride a bike 10 years ago when we first met. Part of the reason we come here, I really fell deep in love with the sport when I moved to Barcelona many years ago in 2016 timeframe and uh, got caught in COVID uh, back in Austin. And I used to do training in Austin with you. So we would get ready to come back to either Asia or Europe to ride. And, you know, had to spend a couple seasons in Austin riding. And eventually I was just like, well, how do I get back the passion for cycling? Because every week you hear about somebody who got ran off the road, you're getting yelled at by drivers. There's guys in big trucks that you know have guns in there that are starting arguments with you. Mostly Dodge Rams, to Mostly be fair. Mostly Dodge Ram 1500s. <laughs> I've done the math on this. And I remember like I was on this ride and I was like, well, how do I get the passion here in America for cycling? I went and bought a mountain bike. You got to get off the roads. And fast forward to my first ride back in Europe, bolted together the old road bike and took it out on this canal ride where I went to a small suburb outside of Paris. You described it so well. The cars prioritized me. They knew that I was a vulnerable cyclist and we worked together. You could just feel the difference in the vibe. And it makes a world of difference when you're, again, trying to have some dignity, trying to get around your space with other people. We're not trying to prevent cars from going anywhere. We just want to get around the same way they do, you know? And I think... That's just one little anecdote that I think those experiences add up and multiply into your overall assessment of a place to live. Monday. Monday. What's faster than a top fuel dragster down the quarter mile? Your business when you use Dynamite Jobs Recruiting to supercharge your cash flow engine. Strap in, gas up, and let the profits flow. If your hiring is slow or falling off track, supercharge your strategy with a zero to 30 minute phone call with our legends of the hard sell. They'll dazzle you with high pressure, career killing sales tactics, urgency, persistence, auto dealership desperation. And then tell me you couldn't use a little more of these in your pursuit of business excellence. Operations managers in Omaha, marketing mavens in Marbella, coding wizards in Cape Town. We're taking this race global. Thanks to the support of listeners like you, it's not just the hard driving, E and clothes and showing at the wheel anymore. We've got a whole team at your service. This 
Monday. Monday. Let's outrun your competition with an insanely profitable hire from Dynamite Jobs. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and click on remote recruiting. Let's move on to Kevin's question. David and Goliath or Dynamite Jobs versus Indeed.com. You've mentioned back to Kevin, excellent writer. Thanks for writing in, Kev. You mentioned Indeed.com a few times as the large de facto player these days in terms of recruitment sites, which is also based in Austin. And that is very true. Indeed.com, a wonderful company, a enormous company. They don't all right. At one time, you even mentioned just how hearing the word Indeed spoken gave you anxiety, maybe excitement, or maybe when it was passing their headquarters. That's right. You can see their logo, that 2004 bubble logo everywhere around Austin. When I first heard that on the pod, it immediately resonated with me. My partner and I are currently building a software product that will likely go head to head with some fairly big names and they have at least a decade head start on us. I often ask myself if I'm thinking clearly by even attempting to face these Goliaths. The only thing that keeps me going back is that I've spent the past decade in entrepreneurship, always staying in safe little buckets of protected small niches. I've played that game of finding a niche few others have thought about, and honestly, I'm kind of over it, while still grateful for the income streams it provided. Small niches are often easier to start, but are easier to hit a ceiling in terms of market size. Having experienced growing our businesses to the upper limits of the markets we're in, we have our eyes on the bigger prize where the bigger players are, players that really know what they're doing, but where the reward is potentially much greater than a tiny lease. Nonetheless, I'd love to hear y'all thoughts on this with regards to dynamite jobs. I'm especially interested to know what's going through your mind during the period where DJ was not making much revenue after a few years in. That is very true. We made $5,000 our first years in business. That was not good while simultaneously realizing you could be going head-to-head -head with big, well-funded players. What kept you in the game at a time where you spent a considerable amount of time and money, but you were not yet seeing the payoff you've had in the past year? And thanks for always putting as much as you do into the podcast. All right, well, we do it because of questions like this. It's absolutely awesome. Yeah, It's absolutely cool to the community, and I hope maybe, depending on Kevin's progress with his story, that he would come onto the show and share what he's up against because that's what it's all about. It's about like figuring out other people taking on the same intellectual and life challenges as you and saying, this is the best we got. Like we have information, we have a network. We're going to take on this life challenge and see if we can achieve our goals. It's exciting. It's thrilling. And the same way Kevin's word about showing up in Lisbon and having that money, the internet, sweet, sweet money coming from the internet, buying those uh, menu del dias and stuff. Yeah. It's the same deal here when you say, hey, I want to up level. I want to become wealthy through my small business. That means that I'm going to have some stiff competition. It means my competition is going to say, well, I didn't use dynamite jobs because I used Indeed. And you're going to have to face that down and say, give a real reason as to why they should come to dynamite jobs or your software product. So I'm wondering, Ian, if we could reflect a little bit on the choice to be a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. Putting our name next to Indeed, that's very nice. It reminds me uh, of, uh, I saw some video the other day, it was like a VC firm and the guy was sitting there. He has a little VC firm logo on a Nike shirt. It was like clear that they were like <laughs> next to each other. It was like, 
Yeah, that's cheap and nice. It's like, <laughs> you can put the logos together, but not Nike. Well, they uh, say you're supposed to punch up. You're yeah. supposed to pick a fight. So, so we should have some big negative review of Indeed, you know? Uh, actually, we don't. I mean, that's the thing. All I hear is good stories, and we have some friends that work there, and uh, they've told us some great stories. The origin story I've heard from a couple of people, and it sounds like we're doing similar things, so I'm, like, excited about that. But certainly, they're a multi-billion dollar company. And so, you know, when we talk about big fish, small pond, small p- fish, big pond, we're going to break this down and, I think, speak about where we think we are and where we think we're going. But, you know, you cannot show up to an F1 race having never raced a car before and never built a car before. It's just not how it works. Number one, you don't have the license. Number two, you don't have the car. I think the problem, though, is that with technology and with uh, software, like you actually can try and show up to the F1 race, right? Because like the playing field is like fairly equal and even in terms of designing software. So I think that's where a lot of people potentially go wrong is they try and compete with Indeed right out the gate. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, yes, you can build the software. Yes, you can do all these things, but like it's not smart because uh, you're going up against this huge fish. So I think when we got into Dynamite Jobs to begin with, like uh, we were starting to pick off smaller players. We're trying to pick off smaller opportunities, you know? And I think we're not even in a marketplace yet, so to speak. Like Indeed is just in a different spectrum. We're just beginning. Um, We're not trying to pick a fight with Indeed. We're trying to pick a fight mostly with yourself, I think, until you're up to a couple million dollars a year. It's like, how much are the founders going to argue with each other? How many bad decisions are you going to make? How much cash are you going to burn? You know, and you're in a fight with yourself and your own ego. Yeah. And that's what's so nice if we're going to do pros and cons lists about being in a bigger market is that all of a sudden you can't blame your niche anymore. Oh, these DIY fly fishermen just are so cheap. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever your niche is, all of a sudden it's like, you're looking at the guy in the mirror and saying, well, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. I can't find, you know, something to pick off. I just want to say a few words about Indeed before. The more we get to know Indeed, I think the more we like it. Indeed, for those who don't know, is kind of like University of Austin, Texas. It is like a business graduating class. So many wonderful entrepreneurs and business people worked at Indeed previously. They had... And I don't know how much this still maintains, but certainly in the early days, a legendary culture of bringing people in Austin together and working on a cool business. We want to duplicate that. That's kind of cool. Then you learn more about them. You realize that they not only support competition, but they fund it. They're the big dog. They want to know what everybody's up to and they want to integrate that in their services. So that's really cool. They're the primary acquirer of businesses like DJ. And then you start to meet people that work there and how supportive they are of competition and what we're up to and saying, man, it'd be great for you guys to really succeed. Maybe I could come work for you guys. Maybe Indeed could acquire you guys. Maybe we could learn from each other, whatever. The distance there is so enormous. That brings me to this idea that if you have a a competitor that's blazed past sufficiently ahead of you, uh, you can really draft, especially if you're 10 years after, because now all of a sudden there's a whole new tech stack. It's like, indeed made their juke and they're committed to their direction. So that's maybe, you know, not remote, for example. So now all of a sudden you can find your own little niche in that draft. Um, You kind of saw this, for example, with Ahrefs, like when Ahrefs launched, part of what they were able to do is build a Google index so that they could provide amazing SEO data. 
And if they would have launched when Google launched, they couldn't compete with them. They couldn't build the index. That, that was what Google did. But all of a sudden, 10, 15 years later, it became possible for a smaller business to build an index. And I think that's the opportunity when you look at big incumbents that, hey, you don't have to like join F1 to take some things that made those cars fast and then race another race with it. And so maybe that's the metaphor. So instead of small fish, big pond, let me posit in another metaphor. How about hang out in a fertile tributary, build your nest, get some cash flow going, and as you become stronger, you move closer to the sweet, sweet river right. where the champions are crowned. I don't know. But, <laughs> but I do think that there's this kind of thing that happens if you pick a big market, you can find a niche within the marketplace. So for example, ours is typically if you're a software or e-commerce company based in North America and you want to hire customer support staff in America at a reasonable rate or technical staff overseas, forget about paying 20% first year salary, hire Dynamite Jobs for a flat rate, we'll go find that person for you. That's been working great for us. You know, that's not a service that indeed is going to offer to small software businesses, but it happens to be a big market and the cash flow gained from that market can help us build our technology, stay in the game, be fiscally prudent, and continue to go to more and more fertile cash flows and tributaries, eventually building out to the river, to, to stick with the metaphor. But I think what Kevin's pointing to is the anxiety of when you're building something big, like a remote hiring platform, which is what we're building. No one wants to buy that from you in year number one. No one trusts your remote hiring platform, yeah. you know? And I think that's what I really feel from this. And we went through it. And I think the answer is, is we found a way to cash flow that experiment to stay in the game and to continue to compete with people who are building remote hiring platforms via fiscal prudence, finding a niche within a niche and cash flowing the adventure. Yeah, I think your metaphor of the stream or hatching and then swimming upstream is also probably similar to like just moving ponds, right? So you don't need to stay in the same pond. Like you can be a... Amphibious. Yeah, you can muddy the mud skipper. You can move around to the pond depending on what you're trying to achieve. Now, when we started our first physical products business, Valet Podiums, we absolutely reached the top. I mean, we couldn't have sold anymore, you know? We became awkward fish. We became awkward fish. And that was a situation where like we were inventing new products and we had totally saturated the market. We were number one. We had a couple small competitors, but it was like, you, we we're never going to get rid of them. Like we actually reached the point where we were the biggest fish in the smallest pond possible. I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Yeah. Essentially what happened for us is we like maximized our income and we couldn't earn anymore. So we had to start other businesses. So think also, you know, work back from like what your income goal is too. So if you want to make, you know, half mil, mil, two, three, five, whatever it is per year, you have to get into an industry and a market that has, you know, multiple million dollar cap, billion dollar cap, whatever it is. Us being naive in 26, like we didn't realize that, you know, the whole market itself was only a couple million dollars. You know? Yeah. So then we started the mobile cocktail bars business, uh, portablebarcompany.com. Right. And we didn't see that through because, you know, we don't want to slog through the growth of another business. And now we got to go to another industry's trade shows and build a 
whole other set of relationships. We'd rather do a digital monies. But I'm wondering, are we overthinking this? Does even if you become big, awkward fish that takes up half the pond, now you're having to like jump over to this next thing. Is that such a big problem? Aren't those parlays out there if you're in the game, cash flowing, running successful businesses? Totally. I think so. Yeah. Or was it a mistake? Well, I think for us, I mean, there was some mistakes, but then there was also some things that could have been worked out. And we've talked about it on this podcast a lot, just in terms of our endurance and our appetite for those types of businesses, the cash flows that were required. So maybe that's you're talking about. I'm hearing a little bit of onstage test. Absolutely. Do you didn't want to be the portable bar guy for the next five years? Correct. It's a vibe, as the kids say. You have to really exist in that industry. And I think if you can exist in those smaller niches that people are less passionate about, it is an enormous competitive advantage. If you can be passionate about the process of building businesses, of stamping out duplicate businesses, of flopping over amphibian in your way to the next pond, yeah, or building tools for people that are doing such, which is often the way that small niche domination ends in global domination, so to speak, as you say, there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that aren't world-class high performers. They want to build cash flow businesses. I did it. Now I've got the case study. Here's either my coaching program, my software tool, my SaaS product that helps a thousand other people do it. Bam. That's how you get there. So kept saying, Hey man, I'm feeling myself a little bit. I've been at this for 10 years. I've had successes. Now I want to step up and compete with bigger products. Is that necessary? Should he started competing with the bigger products? Well, I think one of the things to consider is that like uh, when you're a big fish in a small pond, like everyone wants a piece of you, like you're under attack, you're under attack at all times, basically, because there's going to be some new incumbent, somebody that sees what you're doing, hears about how much money you're making, whatever. And there's a potential for them to rip you off or come at you. If you got the best noodle shop on the block, there's a chance that a noodle shop opens up right next door that says the original noodle the original Noodle King. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the downsides. Now, the one of the upsides of, I think, being a small fish in a big pond is that you can go basically unnoticed and you can like pick some low-hanging fruit here and there and like make your living from it. And then when you decide that you want to try and become the biggest fish in that pond, you can do that as well. And you can do it by scaling up and eating all the other small fish. So one of the things that makes me think about is our friend Eamon was recently on this podcast, former CEO of AppSumo. And he mentioned that, like, don't even worry about your competition until you're at 100 million in revenue. But then when you're at 100 million in revenue, those CEOs, they have to be like mob bosses. They have to protect what they built because there's less oxygen up that high. But that same situation can exist in these small niches. Whereas if you're on one block and you got one noodle shop, there's only so many seats in there. Now, all of a sudden, you've moved into protection mode premature. So maybe we're not overthinking this. Maybe there is something to this idea that you actually choose a space where there's enough oxygen at the beginning. And pretty much business is just as hard as it's going to be, no matter what kind of business you're working on. Mm -hmm. I think of this a lot of times when I hear the solopreneur fantasy of like, ah, oh, it's stressful to have employees. It's stressful to do. Tell you what, man, like doing business is stressful. Like you're going to face challenges. You're going to have to come to work and do stuff you don't want to do. That's business. And so to have this fantasy world that there's some kind of niche that you can be in, that you're going to be free from all that, I don't really buy it. And so if all things are being equal, you might as well open yourself up to the opportunity because the real wins come when you hit those windfalls in larger niches and you reach that point of 
you know, you're just cash flowing more money than you really know how to deploy. And that happens often. Yeah, the internet is cool because these ponds are kind of infinitely big or infinitely small. Like if you were to go into local business in your town, whatever that town is, like the pond is very much defined. You know, it's like, yeah. it's it's as big as it's going to be. You know, if you're in Austin, the pond is growing faster than it is in most cities, you know, but it, you kind of, your adjustable market is what it is. But on the internet, like you can create markets, you can defeat markets, you can expand markets. It's an amazing place to... uh to own a business because there's so much flexibility. Well, and I think, you know, maybe one of the interesting takeaways here is to do the math on the market, you know, and this is something that we did early in the valet space and it was quite legible. We could like stare it in the face, like here is the total market in America for valet podiums. If we take 50% of it, here's what our cut's going to be. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of oxygen there. And I think there should be many, many, many multiples, you know, what you need to have a success in your business in the market you're going for. And then, you know, how are you going to stay in that market for multiple years while you're not seeing momentum? That in some ways is the entire question of this podcast. That is the thesis of the 1000 day principle. That's the reason why we listen to each other's stories and continue to stay responsible with the financials, come to work every day, try to be open-minded and try to apply something positive. And then you just cross your fingers. That's the question mark, question mark, question mark part. And hopefully profit. Profit. So that's the way to say, I don't really know the answer to that question, except to go out and try to create results. And one of the things that really helps me is to have backup plans in my mind. Like for example, if we had a terrible month, we have a very high payroll right now and we were doing our quarterly review and, and we call it belt line internally. We say, oh man, that belt line's at blank, blank a month. And if you came to me and sales got halved and all of a sudden I'm going to have to reach into my bank account and write a big old check to make payroll. We talk about that too. We talk about what happens if shit hits the fan this quarter, how much of our personal bank accounts are we going to risk to keep the business alive? I think about all the things we could do to generate cash flow in a four week period to make sure that we're good. And knowing that those short term options, those sugar options, you know, that we've talked about on the show, sugar option means like a business that can generate cash flow, but maybe it's not a long term play, or maybe it's not, you don't see it leading towards that on stage test in five years, the sort of thing you really want to build in the world. But knowing that the sugar option exists, maybe keeps you focused on the vegetables and you want to build that business that's going to be have a longer term potential for you. And so that's one of the ways I do that, Kevin, is we just literally do the worst case scenario analysis quite a lot. And we don't have to face it that often. Another way of saying that too is like uh, try not to over leverage yourself when you're going to attack the big fish, right? So if like you use all your energy swimming as fast as you can to try and eat this fish and you miss, like what's going to be your downside? Like, are you going to be so out of energy that that fish eats you? So try and protect yourself. All right. Any more closing thoughts on big fish, small pond? You can scale your pond, change the metaphor pond versus tributary. There's really no competition with Indeed. Getting tapped out in the valet forces us to build adjacent business. Perhaps we're just overthinking this, like our opportunities tend to parlay and often businesses are like slowly, 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 suddenly. Yeah, I called these, uh, how do you keep going if like you're not getting the positive results? Keep costs low, be enterprising, be consistent. So much of success is just about showing up and driving consistent action every day. 
It is a lost skill in the world where everybody's just trying to answer the test correctly to get approval from people who don't ultimately matter. I'm going to leave you guys with a quote I got from Twitter. I'm going to read this one. It's by the current GOAT entrepreneur, at least the most visible entrepreneur in the world, Elon Musk. He writes, simplify and optimize the design. The reason is this is the third step and not the first step is because the most common error of a smart engineer is to optimize something that simply should not exist. Why would people do that? Well, everyone's trained in high school and college that you got to answer the question. If you tell the professor your question is dumb, you will get a bad grade. You have to ask the question whether something should exist. So everyone's basically, without knowing it, they got a mental straitjacket on. They'll work on optimizing the thing that should simply not exist. This quote really jumped out to me, Ian, because I feel like this happens all the time when you're building a difficult, ambitious software problem. Yeah, I was going to say, software especially, we face this problem every day. It's like, well, you go down this rabbit hole, it's logical, of course they need it, of course they want it. Okay, it's going to take us six weeks to do it. And then you back up and you're like, well, wait a second. Do people really need this? <laughs> Should I really do this? And uh, a lot of the times it's uh, it's no. And actually our CTO, Simon, he's really good at this, basically. Yeah, he is. It's just like letting things hang out there and then ignoring them and then eventually deleting them and then no one complaining about it. And it's like one of those things, like sometimes the best thing to do is nothing. And it's really hard to do because you want to be busy. You want to be productive. You want to be shipping. You know, all these things that are that are in theory good, but a lot of times if you're working on these things that aren't as valuable, that maybe shouldn't exist, you can't get to the things that should exist. Yeah, and I find often I am like the naive interventionalist American optimist when it comes to these things. Like the metaphor would be like one of those nice suburban homes with all the Christmas lights on it, you know? And I'm like, you know what we need? We need like the sleigh with all the reindeer coming across the roof. That'll really bring people in, man. They love that stuff. They'll notice it from really far away. And actually what you need is like a strong electrical box that meaningfully delivers the electrical current. And that's the thing you should be building because people really just care about reliable energy. And like no one, if the lights go out and like the washer doesn't work and your stove doesn't light up and stuff, no one's saying, oh my gosh, the sleigh isn't lit up right now. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so sometimes- Last priority. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, you end up just deleting that sleigh so that you can focus on keeping the power on. And I think that that's a really powerful quote. And something that we do a lot in business, especially for those first three years that Kevin's pointing to, you build things that you think are going to be the thing and you end up being able just to just delete it all and stick to that thing that works, you know? And I think about all the things we've done the past three years. It's like, let's do a Thursday email that talks about this stuff. And it's like, okay, no one reads that email. We're done with that. Now let's build a thing that allows people to do this. And you just end up with the two or three things that work. And it's like that with businesses too. You, you buy, you, you log into the Boulevard of Broken Dreams.com, AKA GoDaddy or Namecheap. And you buy that next thing, DynamiteRetreats.com. Man, it's, let's do retreats. It's going to be a thing. And then you do it 150 times and you got four things, you know? And that's just how it that's works. It. That's how it works. All right, everybody. We appreciate your emails that inspired this episode. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.